0: Welcome to another episode of the Karis on Crime podcast series. I'm your host, Beth Karras. Karis on Crime is the place to explore criminal justice issues and cases in the news. I welcome your feedback, your questions and ideas. Post them in the forum on Karis on Crime or on social media. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karis on Crime. And my Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. Today, I'm delighted to invite back forensic analyst Joseph Scott Morgan. You know, I last spoke to him in October 2015. doesn't seem like it's been so long. You may know him from his television appearances on CNN, HLN, and elsewhere. And he's also the author of a memoir, Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator. Now, for that book, he received Georgia's Author of the Year Award in 2013, Joseph was a medico-legal investigator with the New Orleans Coroner's Office and with the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office for a total of 20 years. Now, he's currently on the faculty of Jacksonville State University's Center for Applied Forensics, and that's located west of Atlanta, just over the Alabama border. Now, I reached out to Joseph again after learning that a Missouri County coroner held an inquest a few weeks ago Now, that's a public coroner's inquest regarding a teen who had killed himself after relentless bullying. At least the reports are that he was bullied for a long time at school and at his job at a Dairy Queen, and he killed himself four days before Christmas in December 2016. So welcome back, Joseph.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Beth, and uh, hello to all your listeners as well.
0: So what is your reaction to the coroner in Missouri? Now, this was in, let's see, a county, Howard County, Missouri, deciding to have this public inquest after the death of, of the tragic death of Kenneth Suttner.
1: Uh, You know, at first, uh, when I found out about the case, Beth, I I was, uh, uh, it was kind of curious to even hear the term coroner's jury. It's, (laughs) It's not something that you hear, Regularly, and um it's, uh, it, not that it hasn't been done in the past, it's just the coroners, uh, nowadays rarely, uh, impanel a jury to hear, uh, to hear cases. Um, and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that we're a bit more sophisticated now, uh, relative to how we investigate deaths. That we have access to forensic pathologists who generally make a ruling in a case, a standalone ruling. That is, if the coroner is not a forensic pathologist, and the forensic pathologist will go on the recommendation of the forensic pathologist of, uh, of the forensic pathologist that does autopsy. In this case, they they ask the coroner's jury uh, to make a determination of the death. And, and that's kind of where this is skewed a bit um, because as a result of this, now this has led to a charge uh, of uh, uh, it, it's, it completely changed the face of this thing. It's, it's gone from being a suicide now to being a homicide and it's, it it seems rather, mm, reactionary, uh, and it, it to my way of thinking, kind of outside the realm of the responsibilities of the coroner.
0: Okay, so, you know, we use these terms coroner, medical examiner. In right. Cal- in California, the medical examiner's office is still called coroner, but they are forensic pathologists. So, you know, can we back up and explain? <laughs>
1: It's very complicated. Uh, coroners are one of the things that I study uh, at Jacksonville State University. It's uh, uh, We wrote, uh, myself and my research partner at the time, wrote one of the largest studies of coroners in the United States. Um, and uh, it's coroners in California in particular um not only is, in L.A. is kind of the exception, but if you go to other places, not only is the coroner the coroner, the coroner is also the sheriff. And you've got this kind of weird uh, marriage uh, between the two. You can go to other states in the United States where you still have coroners. Uh, in the state where I started my work, working for the coroner's office in Louisiana, um, the coroner there is uh, an elected official, but they're uh, a physician. It's mandated by law, uh, and, and so it, it takes on a. It's nuanced in all these different states, and the terms become confusing. Generally, when you hear the term "medical examiner," that implies that the person that is administrating the office and making the calls is actually a forensic pathologist, a board-certified forensic pathologist, which you know requires a lot of training. A coroner, uh, it varies from state to state. Uh, there are some states that don't even require you to have a high school degree to run for the office. Uh, you can just simply have a GED. Still, uh, so, still? Yeah, yeah, still to this day. And so it's it's all over the board. Um, and uh, some states don't have the ability to uh, provide uh, proper training for the coroners. They essentially hand you the keys to the office after they swear you in and say, God bless and good luck. And, uh, and you can imagine these people are making decisions about about things that are uh, intellectually, they're very, very complex, you know, to try to determine. But, you know, relative to the Missouri case, uh, they've impaneled this coroner's jury. And if I can just tell you just a second, uh, mainly the form and function of this thing is to try to determine the manner of death, which are five, um, what kind of classification is this going to fall in, um, homicide, suicide, accidental, natural death, or is it undetermined? And then what the cause is. Well, in this case, uh, the cause is a self-inflicted gunshot wound, okay? Uh, And that goes to uh, what the textbook definition of suicide is that means death at one's own hand okay as opposed to death at the hand of another which we would classify as homicide so well, they've, well, they've uh, opened up a real can of worms here I let
0: think. me ask you this there are scenarios where somebody could self-inflict a wound but there's say 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 a person's uh holding i mean holding you at gunpoint and hand you a gun and a second gun and says shoot yourself or i will and i, I don't know i mean it's a kind of a stupid example, but you know, what no, I mean? you could be killing yeah. yourself under duress.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's extreme mental duress when that that occurs. What's curious about this case is, I find Beth and so fascinating uh, is the fact that the person that is being accused in this case of having perpetrated, and let's face it, that's what they're saying, having perpetrated this event, um, was not even in the same dwelling with this young man when he tragically took his own life. She was far away. She and, was his uh,
0: supervisor at Dairy Queen.
1: Exactly. And so it, it goes to a bigger question, doesn't it? Um, what kind of control did she have over this young man? And can, from a medical legal standpoint, from a medical legal standpoint, I'm not talking about a prosecutorial standpoint here, the two different things. Um, can the coroner justify can the coroner justify ruling this as a homicide?
0: So you're saying that the coroner should not take into consideration the same factors a prosecutor does on, like causation? He no, should just uh,
1: no, no, not at all. You see, uh, in in the medical legal community our choices are very very limited as to what we can rule things and i'll give you a, a great example okay uh there are uh, certain cases uh, for instance involving motor vehicles where if a person dies in a motor vehicle accident uh the cause of death is going to be multiple blunt force trauma but that manner for us would be ruled as a an accidental death okay whereas the police are the the you know the DA is going to charge that person with vehicular homicide or you know negligent homicide or one of these things that's that's not of interest to the medical legal community because in order for that person to have been found as a victim of a homicide vis-a-vis a vehicle then they would have to demonstrate intent uh, for the medical legal community, you know, I'm going to take my car and I'm going to use it as a weapon to facilitate the death of that person. And so um it's kind of more clear cut for us. Uh, you know, the laws, as you know, being an attorney, are voluminous. So they have this huge canon of law that they can kind of select from. Coroners, medical examiners, were very, very limited.
0: So, well, this coroner in Howard County, Missouri, says that he was impaneling this public inquest. I didn't realize that coroner's inquests were public. Mm. Are they all Mm-mm. public?
1: uh you know uh i have such little experience with this uh and it happens so infrequently uh, that uh, I, I can't i can't truly answer that uh in in my experience and from what i've seen you can even go back to the 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 uh, the Bonnie and Clyde case there was a coroner's jury that was impanelled back in Bienville Parish where you know these two were riddled with bullets uh and it was very public uh in in that particular case all those years ago because I think that they just wanted to say that uh, – to demonstrate to the public what exactly had happened because, you know, these two were actually killed in, uh, in an ambush by, by law enforcement authorities, and it was very public, and you can still find those written documents online.
0: Wow. I remember an inquest happening in, um, in Massachusetts after the Chappaquiddick incident with um, Ted Kennedy, I just don't know, and that was 1969, drowning death of a woman who worked for him, right? Yeah, yeah. Who drove off the bridge. Uh, but I don't, I don't remember if, if it was, um, I mean, I was a little girl, I don't remember if it was public or not, but that was the last inquest I'm, you know, I remember. You
1: know. and, and what's really curious uh, about that is that Massachusetts um, uh, hasn't had, they were actually one of the first states to completely do away with the coroner system. They are exclusively a medical examiner system. So it wouldn't be referred to as even a coroner's jury up there. It would just be a, a medical examiner's in, inquiry, you know, in, in that, in the case of, uh, of uh, uh, Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo Kopechnik. Uh, it, it's just, uh, it's one of those things that that's that's quite interesting uh they haven't had the the corner system there for years and years
0: and 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 it was before 1969 that massachusetts got rid of it
1: Oh yes, it was even further back than that. As a matter of fact, uh Massachusetts was one of the first states, if I remember correctly, to actually use the term medical examiner and that goes all the way back to the 1870s or 1880s uh where they saw a need for the coroner to have access to uh to a highly trained medical profession to keep uh to uh, to to uh, give them medical backing in their decisions. And even they recognized that back then. Uh, and it's, you know, it's very progressive on the, on, uh, from the viewpoint of, of, of the, the, the citizens of that state to make that determination. And after a while, the medical, uh, the medical community took over that job and it actually became the medical examiner. Uh, most people think about New York as being, you know, uh, kind of, uh, Dr. Helpern and all those guys up there in New York, uh, founding the first true medical examiner's office, but it, it actually began in, in Massachusetts and, uh, so it's our history here is, is varied. We still have 24 states in the United States that have coroners, elected coroners, and the laws vary from state to state.
0: What is the law in Missouri? Do you call? Uh, they have a they
1: have a coroner. They what? have a coroner, and it's uh, an elected official. And they, uh, Missouri actually is uh, is a great state for medical legal death investigation relative to coroners. They take their training very very seriously. It's uh, and St. Louis itself, St. Louis University is kind of our it's kind of our mecca. It's it's kind of our Vatican, if you will, <laughs> in in one sense because that's where a lot of the original training for medical legal death investigators took place, and actually still continues. to to this day, so the coroners up there are are highly respected, um, and uh, I actually went up there for training at Saint Louis University many, 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 many years ago. Yeah.
0: What is the um, the background though? Do they have to be medical doc- doctors? Like no, medical
1: no, 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 no. And you'll find that that the backgrounds of these individuals are are varied. Uh, uh, you know, from uh, from person to person, depending upon what their level of education is, and that sort of thing. You know, when it comes down to it, uh, you know they they have to be a. Uh a resident, you know, of the county that they're elected in, and and uh, and you know, uh, uh, can't be a felon and all those sorts of things, and then they're mandated to go through training. But at least they have mandated training uh, that the county coroners are required to go through.
0: So this coroner in Missouri, his name is Frank Flaspoler. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. He's been in office for a long time, and he mm-hmm. said this is only the fifth. Uh, coroner's jury you know he's he's used uh in 24 years at least that's what i read i've not spoken to his office uh but he he did give a reason for holding it he said he wanted to raise awareness about bullying because he considers it a public safety problem is that his role
1: to my way of thinking no uh i think that it's it's the purview of the prosecutor um and i understand uh, i'm I commend him for wanting to raise public awareness of it but you know you have uh, this isn't this isn't something new under the sun either let's keep in mind there there are a certain group of corners out there that will uh, uh, that take it upon themselves to rule every uh, every death that is a result of an illicit drug uh, and I'm thinking specifically of like heroin uh, they'll rule that as a homicide now uh, and that you know, and that's as an attachment so that the prosecutor can go after the drug dealer that sold the drugs to the person. And again, uh did the And if you look at it from a logic standpoint, and in that case, for instance, did the drug dealer actually stick the needle in the person's uh, vessel and push the plunger and and cause them to ingest that lethal bolus of of heroin? I guess some people might say, well, yeah, they facilitated it by providing the, the, the drug to them. But let's face it, Beth, when you start to talk about that, you start to talk about it's a very, very slippery slope intellectually, because there's all kinds of other things. If you open that door, if you open that door, as you well know as an attorney, there's all kinds of other things that can creep in. So you have to have your boundaries firmly established and defined. What is your job? What is your job here?
0: Are there successful prosecutions against drug dealers for some level of homicide? Manson,
1: uh, yeah, I think I believe that they are, and I can't, I can't cite specific uh, cases, but I have heard that there have been. Um, I, I, think, I think the real test for it, though, uh, again, is, uh, uh, how's the thing, how's the thing, how's it going to measure up on appeal? You know, are you, are you going to be able to, if you get, the, if you prosecute the thing, you get a conviction on it, how long is this person actually going to stay under wraps? Um, and you know it's it's kind of a it's an it's, it's an interesting idea. Uh, let me give you a, a, an example of something that's that's seems odd, but it, it's more clear cut. Uh, many years ago, I worked a case where uh, an elderly man who had a heart condition was in his home. Uh, a young man came into his home with a shotgun and threw the shotgun up in the the elderly man's face, threatened his life. The old man clutched his chest, fell over dead. Well, that young man was charged with homicide and was convicted. Okay, you've you've got an immediate cause and effect there, and this goes back to the case in Missouri. Uh, cause and effect: uh, the the young man was physically in the presence of that elderly man with a heart condition, and the question you have to ask: uh, if if that young man uh, had not entered into that man 's space during that specific point in time, would the man otherwise have died at that moment um, and uh, you know obviously I think right thinking people would say well, probably not he would have survived that's that's uh, from a prosecutorial standpoint, and again that 's not my area of expertise, but you can kind of follow that logic a little bit better uh, with uh, uh, you know the case in Missouri and maybe even to a certain degree the the uh, the Drug dealers, that sort of thing. Are they, are they in that person's immediate space? and um, it, it kind of gives you pause uh, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic to say the very least um, and you know we can talk about this thing and, and certainly uh, your audience uh, uh, is is very attuned I think um, uh, simply by being able to, to sit at your feet and listen listen what you have to say uh, it, it's going to be interesting going forward to see how how this plays out in the court system is it going to have legs uh, does it meet the Standard of the law. Uh, if you're going to move forward with uh, with prosecutions and uh, you know convictions,
0: well, it's interesting you talk about you know looking at whether or not someone is in the person's space at the time of death. Let's talk about that Massachusetts case of Michelle Carter, who is charged with involuntary manslaughter. They don't have an assisted suicide statute in Massachusetts for encouraging her boyfriend at the time via text messages to get back into the cab of his pickup truck to kill himself by carbon monoxide poisoning. And he did do that. And she, she's facing a trial. I mean, this, the, 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 Strength or the theory of the case has been appealed and it's been upheld and so um, she's going to trial. So she wasn't in it; she was miles away.
1: Right, right, yeah, and uh, wow, and and when you start to get you start to get into this realm, Um, uh, you've got, uh, this is really going to, I don't know if tax is is the proper term, but it's really going to call on uh, all of the intuitive powers of the uh, mental health community, isn't it? I mean, because uh, to be able to uh, retroactively go back and examine the relationship that this young lady had with this young man. And and is the prosecution going to, in court? Are they going to be able to effectively demonstrate that she had almost this Sinhali-esque uh, control over this young man at such a great distance? And obviously, you know, there are cases that are out there uh, where uh, you've got people that are are beaten down and abused chronically over a long period of time, where they're told to do things. Uh, you have, you know, uh, there's any number of cases that are out there where people have been compelled to go and act in a, uh, you know, in a nefarious manner as a result of directives that are being give by, given by other people. Who bears the ultimate responsibility? And I, I don't want to overshoot here, but you know, you even think about, uh, Manson. Uh, Manson, uh, rarely dirtied his hands, did he? Uh, and uh, you know he he was at a great distance uh, when uh, when I think he probably uh, chose to do that, but ultimately he was found to be in this kind of conspiratorial relationship with these people. Is it the same thing maybe not, but uh, directly you know we 've got this this uh, this controlling uh, idea here. Did she have the ability to I don't know kind of uh, psychically project these uh, vis her directives uh, to get this young man to pull the trigger Did she have that much control over him
0: You're or not pull
1: the trigger But but uh, to to, right. to uh, you know to to um, to inhalate uh, this poisonous, noxious gas, did she have that kind of well, kind of she, control?
0: She, I think the case is probably a little stronger than the Missouri one. I mean, she yeah, knew yeah. he he had been treated for depression. He had uh, right. since 2011. He, he killed himself in 2014. His name was Conrad Roy. He had attempted suicide the year before he did uh, successfully kill himself. Um, they had kind of a virtual relationship. I mean, they live in different towns, and a lot of their their relationship quote-unquote was was through you know text messages and phone calls and stuff but she said things like i mean I'm, i'm paraphrasing i don't have her text messages in front of me but i recall that she said things like you know your family will be okay everybody's gonna be all right you know you just need to do this and she really she really was you know telling him it's gonna be okay you need to you just need to do it so she did have some control i think she had some control over him
1: you know, I, I guess throwing the question back to you, uh, as an attorney, uh, how how difficult how difficult is this going to be on the part of the prosecution to be able to prove this, prove this to a jury where they're going to buy into this? I mean, is it is is this a possibility? I mean, well, do you think that they'll bite on it? I, I, I I'm curious to know.
0: Well, I know they're not supposed to consider, you know. Me sympathy, emotion, and all that, but they will, just like that coroner's jury did in Missouri, right? I mean, they were disgusted by how bullied this this young man was, and said, you know, they also said the school district was negligent in their bullying prevention, and that Dairy Queen was negligent in their supervision of employees, and they recommend criminal charges against the employee. I mean, they really, you know, Put a, shine a spotlight on um on what was happening in that in that school and in um that community you're listening to the on crime podcast series it's time for a quick break we'll be back shortly Welcome back to Caris on Crime. I'm Beth Caris. I'm speaking to Joseph Scott Morgan, a forensic analyst and former death investigator who worked with medical examiners in New Orleans and Atlanta for two decades. I think that the jury in Michelle Carter, um, I, I don't know 12 will find that this was proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's going to be hard to overcome how she encouraged him. Assured him everything will be okay. Life will go on. His family will get over it. Just do it. Do it. Do it. I mean.
1: Yeah, and there's, there's demonstrable evidence in this you, know, for this, you know, for these events. I mean, you know, you've got this communication that's going on with them and this sort of thing, and, and uh, it'll certainly play into it. And I think that that'll be, <laughs> wow, that's going to be really impactful. Uh, you know, for the jury, you know when they see this um, uh, and it really does it really does put the uh, the uh, medical examiner in a curious spot because the medical examiner is the person that will have ruled this from the five manners of death. Uh, this individual will have made a choice between those five and they selected homicide. Uh, That at that point in time, the defense, the door is open. The defense can ask that medical examiner while he's on stand, what's your rationale for ruling this as a homicide doctor? We want to know what you think from a scientific perspective. And he's going to have to answer that question. And uh, for me, being part of the medical legal community, I'll be very, very interested to hear that testimony.
0: Fascinating. Are you aware of any cases where the um – Coroner or medical examiner concluded the manner it you know, wasn't a homicide, maybe undetermined, and the prosecution went forward with homicide.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, and they're, they're out there, uh, and, and, uh, there, there are a number of times, even in my career, where I've seen, uh, where I've seen medical examiners and DAs, uh, not come to blows, literally, but, you know, they, there's <laughs> strong disagreements about their opinion. Uh, and a lot of this can be, you've got, Two very stubborn people that you know have have an idea about something, but you know that's that's the beauty of of the system because it is a true checks and balances system. There, uh, you're not going to have a hopefully you're not going to have a coroner or a medical examiner uh, that is going to be. Led, led by the nose, if you will, by the prosecutor to simply, you know, well, do as I say. And, you know, that's one of the fights that that we have in the medical legal community, that when you look at, uh, say, a state medical examiner's office, I always have a real hard time uh, with those offices that are administrated by the chief law enforcement wing in the state. Because you, you kind of cease, you surrender your independence. If you go to some place like, say, for instance, New Mexico, where they have a state medical examiner's office, do you know who, who administrates that office? Oh. Well, it's the, it's the Department of Health it's not the it's not the AG's office for the state so they are truly an independent voice in this case and and that's that's really the way it it should be you know where these uh, the two things are separate they they kind of do the same thing but their world view is 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 completely different and so uh, yeah you're going to have these these you know these these fights, but you know we live in a in a I mean we work in 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 the legal system we work in this kind of uh, I can't remember the uh, the term it's a confrontational system uh, where you know you have prosecution versus defense well right. adversarial you, you, is the word the adversarial adversarial uh, relationships it, that's healthy you know some people shy away from arguments arguments are healthy man you know because you get to like we're doing right now you discuss these these ideas and you get it out there and you get people talking. About about it and the same thing applies in court and that's how you kind of uh you know you kind of separate the wheat from the chaff uh you don't want somebody that's just going to be milk toast and it's going to be led around you know and say well uh you know i think that today i'm going to make this decision because it's the politically expedient thing to do um you got to stand by what you believe you know what are the facts in this case
0: right can i go back to um the drugs for a minute you were talking about Absolutely. heroin, heroin dealer is getting charged with some level of homicide if somebody they sell to dies. Where do you if if that theory works successfully, then why can't you charge doctors who knowingly over prescribe opioids and somebody dies?
1: Wow. Uh, you know, Beth, as we say in the South, I think you've just gone from preaching to meddling now, haven't you? <laughs> uh, the, the, yeah, I mean, isn't that something? You know, as, as a death investigator, uh, you know, uh, in, during my career, I've, I've, I've been into the homes of the dead that are under medical care, uh, and have walked through, walked out of the house carrying medications that I have to go and log in. I remember one case in particular where if folks at home will remember, the, you know, the regular and some people still use them, uh, the, the brown paper bag, full-size uh, uh, grocery, grocery bags. I've carried out three armfuls filled with nothing but prescription meds. And there would be multiple doctors that had prescribed all this stuff. Well, you've got a dead person. You know, uh, it's and the the doctors, even though it's a licit drug, uh, you have no idea what kind of toxic me- mess you're 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 sticking into somebody's body with this thing. Even doctors are not aware that others are prescribing medications, but they're not held to the same standard, are they? Well, um, I
0: suppose in that in this that scenario, the doctor's defense could be, well, we didn't know there were other doctors involved. Uh-huh, it's the fault yeah. of the patient
1: yeah yeah it's the fault that it always comes back to them it it's like uh it's it, I've always found it curious uh you know if if you or I are driving in our vehicle and we bring harm to someone and they wind up dying, you know we're charged with manslaughter if it If someone dies during the course of treatment by a physician, it's referred to as medical misadventure. And, you know, that's always struck me as, if death can be comical, that's always kind of struck me as, as kind of one of those things that's kind of a head-scratcher.
0: Well, I you know. mean, there are civil suits, and there are a lot of civil suits, malpractice suits against doctors, but to to actually charge a doctor with some oh, boy, level of yeah. homicide, it's got to oh, be my really, I mean, intentional really, or really, really gross negligence.
1: Right, yeah, and it it has to be. And that, that standard is um, uh, much higher, isn't it? you know when it comes to that particular community so um and again this is this is one of those instances where uh it's it's it gives us pause to think about the decisions that we make Uh, uh, And uh, not just individually, but uh, from a judicial standpoint, you know, uh, are we going to selectively charge people, you know, relative to things? Uh, Is everybody going to be held to the same standard and have the same level of responsibility? Um, Interesting, uh, uh, interesting things.
0: So, you know, um, we talked in October 2015 and, and three, four months later, Judge Justice Scalia died. And I called you again because I was writing an article uh, for law news uh, to talk about his investigation, we don't have to go into the details of that. But what I came away with, and you had taught me, was that you know every state you've just you've spoken a little bit about it today. Every state has different you know different rules, different standards, and you know it's death investigations and the rules, the protocol are all over the map,
1: right? Yes. so oh, it's it's so varied, and you know the uh, Justice Scalia's passing is is. Uh, uh, one of those things that, that stands out among all of them. Uh, if you, if you look at that case, if you look at that case, you've, you've got, uh, this person that is, uh, arguably, uh, one of the most powerful people in the United States. He's found deceased, uh, at this, uh, hunting lodge. Uh, and, uh, no one, uh, and I mean no one in the medical legal community got to take a look at his body. And now there's, you know, all kinds of stories that are floating around as these things uh, do uh, do go, where he's found, you know, some people say he had a sheet over him, over his face. He had a pillow over his face. He's found on the floor. He found on the bed. Uh, well, those things can be kicked around now for years and years to come. I guarantee you somebody will write a book about it sooner or later, but we'll never know, will we? And And in Texas, they don't have Uh, At a county level, they don't have coroners, and they don't—they have medical examiners, but they're—they're the people that bodies are sent to. The actual medical legal authority in the counties in Texas is the justice of the peace, and (laughs) uh, the justice of the peace explained in the case of Justice Scalia why she uh, her rationale for not attending the scene. You ready for this? It was geographically prohibitive. And uh and what at the that end of the mean? Di- well, it was at such a great distance she couldn't have got there in an uh in in an expeditious manner. And uh, and what's curious to me is that uh, you know, uh county's paying for your gas. Maybe they provide you a vehicle. This is your job, go do your job. Uh and um and uh there was one report where she was rather giddy, you know, about the fact that it was, uh, you know, this was an awesome moment in time where, you know, we had, uh, uh, you know, that uh, it was, I was struck by the fact that it was the justice that had died, you know, and this sort of thing. You know how he was pronounced dead? How? Oh. She pronounced him dead over the phone. Over the phone, Beth. And this is this is legal in Texas. How, how, how can you pronounce somebody dead over the phone?
0: So she took somebody's and, but, word for it, somebody who was looking. Yes,
1: exactly. And no one with medical legal training. You know, people say, well, the U.S. Marshals were there. That's great. U.S. Marshals are great people. I know some of them. Uh, I've got friends that are U.S. Marshals. Are they medical legal death investigators? No, they're not. They're not. Uh, and uh you know it's certain people have certain jobs if you have a particular job um, I think that all of us you know I uh, think many of us that are that are out there would know that if we didn't do our job, we'd get fired would we not? Well, go do your job. This is your job. This is what <laughs> this is what the people of the county are paying for. Go examine the man's remains. Now, for years and years to come, we know that people uh, will that are either uh, uh, you know opportunist or they, have, or they have tenfold you know hats on their head are going to be blogging about this and writing books about it, and they'll say everything. And isn't it curious? Isn't it curious that? Um, uh, Something like this has happened before in Texas.
0: What are you talking about, Kennedy? Kennedy's assassination?
1: Yes, exactly. His body was not examined at the medical examiner's office in Dallas, which they had a fully trained staff with a board-certified forensic pathologist. His body was placed on a plane, allowed to leave Texas, and flown to uh, to uh, Bethesda, where his autopsy was facilitated by two Navy pathologist who had no forensic background whatsoever and people are still scratching their heads over it. and you know um, they don't even know where his brain is at this point it's well, been well, lost
0: in in his in his case didn't went there like secret service and in, in the uh, emergency room keeping certain people out I mean I had read one of the doctors oh yeah of yeah those.
1: yeah you're absolutely right but you know at the end of the day at the end of the day It's a death. And we have to ask this question, don't we, Beth? Um, If they'll treat, and it's not just exclusive to Texas, but if they'll treat Justice Scalia like this, if they'll treat Kennedy like this, how are they going to treat us? I mean, we have no standing compared to these people. In the whole grand scheme of things, right, uh, right, and that's that's kind of a you know it's kind of a contention.
0: What do you say to the the possibility that there were authorities higher than the the state authorities saying no? You know, we're we're exercising our you know, supreme power. You know, we're the federal government. We're coming in and we're taking him back to Washington. This would be in the case of uh, Kennedy.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, and that goes to a bigger point. We have no, and I mean no. National system that is set up to investigate deaths. Nothing, not not a medical legal system. There's nothing. There's not even a, a national standard. Uh, one one forensic pathologist was famous uh, famously stated that uh, you, know, you, you, need to, uh, you know you need to you uh, know you need to get a license to sell real estate. Even barbers are certified, uh, uh, you know, but there's there's no such national certification for the medical legal community.
0: So, if the death of a Supreme Court justice, the assassination of a president—granted, that was years ago, decades ago—I right, right, yeah. mean, if these deaths don't draw attention to this, what will draw attention to the need for at least some some standard national protocol?
1: I, I have no idea. I, I don't. I don't know that there is some kind of seismic shift that will take place you know there was the 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 committee recommendation that came back in 2010 that said that uh that uh you know the corner system should be abolished well if the corner system's going to be abolished the question is okay uh and the feds made it was a federal committee uh well what are you going to replace it with you can't just arbitrarily say well it should be abolished well right now there's people out there that are invested in their community that care about their dead um they're there to 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 wipe the tears and and uh and look into these things and they're committed to their communities but they don't get the resources from the federal government they don't get the support from the state and and it's really curious in in the front line piece that uh, uh that uh, uh that w- that came out a few years ago on pbs uh the the corner at the time of new orleans uh, he closed that 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 uh that piece in his office, they had him quoted on screen saying this. And I want you to really pay attention to this. Dr. Frank Minyard said this. He says, when the public starts screaming and the politicians start screaming for, for change and all this thing, just keep in mind. And he said, and this is a quote, put this on your screen in big, bold letters. Dead people don't vote. And that's, that is powerful because most people don't think about death until it happens to them or it happens to their loved ones. But there's not some huge groundswell out there where people say, well, the system has to change. It, it's just, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's just, it's just not out there. And it's really a shame because Lord knows what's being missed, and has been missed for years and years.
0: So everything we're talking about dealt with your prior life as a medical, uh, legal investigator. So what are you doing now?
1: Well, you know, as as you mentioned, uh, and I appreciate that. I'm I'm at Jacksonville State University in Alabama. Um, uh, I'm here. Um, my title here is Distinguished Scholar of Applied Forensics, and uh, we have one of the oldest. Um, we we were we were doing forensics here before it was cool. <laughs> uh, our forensics program that we have, and it's a forensic investigations program, goes back to the '70s. So we've been producing people that have. Have an eye toward field investigations in forensics. You know, we train people that and educate people that go out into the field to recognize evidence, to secure evidence, and to collect evidence and put it in context as a field practice and then. Take that evidence and bring it back to the people that are the forensic scientists that sit in the lab. You know, there's two parts of the whole, so that's that's who we are we train here in our in our program at, at Jacksonville State. We have the Center for Applied Forensics, which is a unique a unique center here where we do research and also where we have an active crime scene team that services roughly nine nine counties in major crimes uh, here uh, in Alabama in the northeastern part of the state and. And uh, we've got arguably, I think I would put our crime scene team up against anybody we have. And these are graduate level um, uh, practitioners that are out there that go out to these rural communities and service. And that that's kind of one of the things that that we have a real heart for here are underserved communities, and particularly those in rural areas that that don't have access, uh, you know, to a lot of the tools and technology that are out there that people see on television and all those sorts of things. And of course, here for me, my little piece of the pie that I that I do is is study coroners. And as a matter of fact, right now I'm working on uh, establishing a medical legal academy uh, here at uh, at the Center for Applied Forensics, and so we're really excited about that.
0: Wow, fabulous work you're doing. Good luck with all that.
1: Well, thank you, Beth.
0: So, I want to thank you for joining me today, Joseph. It has been enlightening, as it always is when I talk to you.
1: Well, it's my pleasure and honor to speak with you. And uh, we could, as we say, we could just chat for hours. I enjoy uh, chatting with you, and uh, it's great to have the privilege to speak to your audience today.
0: Great. Well, and I want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of the Keras on Crime podcast series. As I said at the beginning, I want to hear from you. So send me your questions and your ideas. You can post them in the forum on Keras on Crime, the website, or on social media. My Twitter handles are at Beth Keras and at Keras on Crime. You can also find me on Facebook on the page with my name, Beth Caris. And until the next time, be well.